In just a few minutes, I'm going to read to you from Psalm 121. One of the struggles that I hear about most is that people struggle being lonely. They struggle with loneliness. You know, you can be really successful in your job and yet have an overwhelming sense of being lonely. You can be on social media all the time and yet still feel lonely. You can do all kinds of things, have all kinds of acquaintances, be known by a lot of people, and yet actually in your heart, you're really, really lonely. And we gather to worship because we are never alone. God is with us, and we are fully known, and we are fully loved. Hear this. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. Beloved, that's true because Jesus is alive. I'll look with you this morning in John chapter 11. So if you have a copy of God's word, you can turn there. The verses I'm going to read are also going to be on the screen. Um, I'm going to look at verses 1 through 4, then we'll read 17 through 27, and then we'll read the last section, uh, verses 32 through 44 this morning. So uh, what I'm going to read to you is God's word. You can bank your entire life on what I'm about to say on what I'm about to repeat, on what I'm about to read. This is the word of life. Listen to this. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. I'll skip down to verse 17, if you would. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Now let's look down to verse 32 through 44. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. 
Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, and his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Pretty amazing story, huh? I wanted to read the whole chapter, but I hope that you will, and I hope that I'll read it again too. Let's pray. Let's ask for God's help as we try to understand this passage. Oh God, we are weak and helpless. All of us every day carry with us struggles, trials, challenges. All of us know what it's like to feel joy and be thankful. But there's always this sense that at some point, our hearts are going to stop beating and we're going to die. So we read these stories and we see of your great power and love. And Lord, we need that power and we need that love. So would you convince us in brand new ways how amazing you are, how glorious you are, and that death doesn't get the final word. Would you convince us in deeper ways, Lord, that we belong to you. Don't leave us alone until we know your grace and love in Christ. Holy Spirit, without you, we are helpless. But work into us, work into us the love of the Father. Work into us new life. Work into us faith. We believe, help our unbelief. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The question that we're going to answer today in this chapter is this. How does Jesus deal with death? That's what this question, that's what this chapter answers, that question. How does Jesus deal with death? Now, in saying that question, I know that there are many of you that probably haven't had a deep experience of death yet. Many of you perhaps have not had someone close to you that died. But I know that there are many of you that have had very difficult encounters with death. Whether it's unexpected loss, friends, family, you have come in close contact with death. And you know what it's like to grieve. You know what it's like to feel loss. You know what it's like to feel the pain of all of that. And I want to remind all of us that we live in a culture that doesn't want to talk about death at all. We are part of a culture that wants to avoid it, either avoid it by living on the surface of life and just skating along, being shallow people, 
Or you might have heard about some of those in the Silicon Valley that are actually actively trying to overcome death. I read something recently that someone thinks that we can overcome death by 2029. Here's the 10 more years. <laughs> it's ridiculous, right? There's even a, a, a thought that we can use nanotechnology to rid our lives and rid our bodies of aging. We can attach nanotechnology onto the cells of our bodies and thereby eliminate aging. So whether you haven't thought about death very much or whether you're investing in companies who are trying to get rid of death, this chapter talks about how Jesus deals with death. Let's make sure we're on the same page and get the story. In the story, we have two women and we have two men. We have Mary and Martha that are sisters, and we have two men, Jesus and Lazarus. Lazarus is the brother of the two sisters. Jesus loves them. If you look in verse 5 and even before that, he says he loved Mary and Martha. He loved Lazarus. And Jesus hears a report. Mary and Martha sent a report to Jesus, letting him know that Lazarus was really sick. Oh, by the way, it wasn't too far that they had to send this report. They lived in this little village called Bethany. Around verse 18, it tells you that it was two miles from Jerusalem. So they just had to get this message to Jerusalem where Jesus was, not too very far away. So Jesus hears this message, and he loves Lazarus. And he hears that Lazarus was sick. And Jesus decides to stay in Jerusalem. Kind of interesting, isn't it? says, your, your friend is dying, he's ill. And Jesus says, okay, well, I'm going to stay here. And his disciples, if you look at verse 6 through 8, or even doubt the validity of that decision. Jesus, why would you want to stay here? Remember, there are people here that just picked up stones and they tried to kill you. Why would you want to stay here? We looked at that at the end of John chapter 10. So here you have Jesus deciding to stay, the disciples not understanding what's going on, and to put this even, to be more literal, if you look at verse 6, Jesus even states this emphatically, awkwardly. He hears the report and this is what he says. Look at verse 6. Uh, sorry, I'm in chapter 10. Verse 6 of chapter 11. So when, they, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill... He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So Jesus hears Lazarus is ill, therefore he decides to stay. That doesn't make much sense, does it? Yet, that's what this text says. That's what actually happened. Jesus stayed. Then, after a couple days, Jesus makes it to Bethany, the little village. By that point, Lazarus has been dead. Jesus knew that he was dead. And he arrives in the village and people know that he's coming. They get word to Mary and Martha. And Martha comes to talk with Jesus first. She comes out to meet Jesus as he's entering the village of Bethany. You can read about that in verses 20, 20 through 27. Martha comes to Jesus and begins to dialogue with him. And then following that in verses 28 through 31, Mary comes. And they both say the exact same things. If you look at verse 21 and verse 32, both of these women say the same thing to Jesus. They said to him, if you had been here, Lazarus would not have died. Can't you just feel the angst there? 
Jesus, if you had been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. But can't you also sense the faith in that statement? Jesus, we know that you have the power. We know that you could have healed this. We know you could have healed our brother. Do you feel the mixture of that? How many times in our lives do we feel that same mixture, you know? Where you're kind of frustrated at something that's going on in your life. And you're telling that to God. And at the same time, you're telling God because you know he can do something. You have this mixture of frustration at the same time, faith. Well, both of these sisters say the exact same things. Something that we can resonate deeply with. And then Jesus comes to the cave. And look at verse 38 through 44. What Jesus does is he summons Lazarus to life. As a matter of fact, if you read scholars, you'll find out that there are many who thought, especially a long time ago, that when Jesus came to the tomb, if he hadn't said Lazarus, everyone would have woken up and come forward. So we specified Lazarus, come forth. Otherwise, Jesus' word is so powerful that everyone in the tomb would have gotten up and been alive again. That's the type of person that we're reading about in John 11, in John's gospel. We're reading about the Christ. We're reading about the Son of God. We're reading about the reality that if we believe, we have life in him. This is our Savior we're talking about. This is our Savior that has this kind of power to do this kind of amazing act. Well, after Jesus raises Lazarus, guess what happens? If you look at the rest of the chapter, 45 and following, you'll find that the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, excuse me, some that saw Lazarus alive went and told the Pharisees. And the Pharisees said, well, we need to tell the council of Pharisees, in other words, the Sanhedrin, like they are the Supreme Court for the Pharisees. And they tell the Sanhedrin, and this is what the Sanhedrin does. They decide, look at verse 53, if you have a copy of the scriptures. From that time forward, they were determining how they were going to put Jesus to death. From that time forward, they were planning and figuring out how they could take Jesus' life. And if you look in verse 54, you read, this is why Jesus didn't walk around openly anymore, but he went to be with his disciples. Just as a sidebar, this is why we covered through chapter 11, and then we'll take a break in the summer, because it seems like when you read John's gospel, You read the first 11 chapters and Jesus is out in the open and he's engaging with people and it's becoming clearer and clearer who he is and the hostility to him is becoming more and more intense. And then you read this at the end of chapter 11. So Jesus therefore didn't walk around openly anymore. He spent time with his disciples. So that's why we're ending our study of John for the summer and we're going to look at the Sermon on the Mount and then we'll pick back up with chapter 12 in August and September. But that's the story. That's the story of Jesus hearing that Lazarus was sick and he died. That's the story of Jesus raising Lazarus to life. Now let's look at the takeaways. I have two for you. The first takeaway is this. Jesus is fully present. Do you ever think about how hard it is to be fully present anywhere? You ever had someone tell you, Dave, put your phone down and look at me when we're talking. You ever had somebody say that to you? Not using the name Dave, but using your name. I'm just quoting some name out of the air, you know. 
You ever find it hard to be present, fully present where you are? Because your mind's always distracted with something. You find it so easy to just do things on the surface and not really sit down and think and reflect and get at what's really going on inside. You just go from one thing to the next to the next to the next. It's not easy to be fully present. As a matter of fact, it's one of the glorious things about worship is that we actually have the opportunity to be fully present in worship. You realize this, right? Like part of the reason why we sit and are still at the beginning is because very few of us, myself included, take time during the week to be still and quiet because we're always running around. When we come to worship, we get to acknowledge before God everything about who we are, even our shortcomings and failures. We are fully present. God gets our minds when we come into worship. He's engaging with how we think about things. We get to express our emotions. And on days in which we have baptisms and the Lord's Supper, we actually get to taste and see that God is good. So that God isn't just engaging our minds, he's also getting into the other parts of our tastes and smell and other ways that we receive things. We get to say hi. We get times in worship in which we are full of joy. And we get times in worship in which it's more sober and somber. To be in worship with God's people is an opportunity for us to be fully present. Even giving to God of our resources is a way that we are present. Saying, God, you get everything of me. All that I have belongs to you. Now that's just a side note. Do you realize how Jesus is fully present here? He is fully present in this situation. Let me tell you, notice how Jesus responds to Mary and Martha. Remember, Mary and Martha say the exact same things. Jesus, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened in essence. Do you notice what Jesus does in his response to Martha and then to Mary? Jesus hears from Martha what she thinks. And Jesus responds to her and he speaks to her. He actually talks about his own mission. He actually explains to her why he came into the world. He tells her about the coming resurrection. He is engaging with what the content of what she said. And Jesus is confident. Look at what he says in verse 25 through 27. I am the resurrection and the life. That's pretty confident. Take that in. Martha says, Jesus, if you had been here, this wouldn't happen. He says, oh, I am the resurrection and the life. And she says, oh, I know. I believe that you're coming again. I believe there will be a resurrection. He says, no, I have the power to do it now. What she says to Jesus, Jesus interacts with her. He's pushing back on her a little bit. And more than pushing back on her, he's giving her profound hope. As if to say, you don't have to wait. I am here. And I can do anything. But notice what Jesus does with Mary. Look at verse 33 through 36. Mary comes to see Jesus. And she's weeping and crying. And, and people have come to Mary and Martha's house to console them. They are sharing their grief. They are entering into their loss and their grief. And what does Jesus do with Mary? She says the exact same thing that Martha did. And you know what Jesus says? 
Where's Lazarus? And then look at verse 35. He weeps. Think about that. You have a Savior. I have a Savior in which there are times that I ask him things and, man, he really gets at me. And he reminds me of his power and reminds me of who he is. And then there are other times in which I am just down and out, weeping, feel significant loss, and he weeps with me. You have a Savior that knows how to cry. You have a Savior who not only can say, I am the resurrection and the life, but the one who can get down with you and weep and cry and mourn. Who knows what it's like to sympathize with you and me in everything in life, every circumstance of life. He knows how to sympathize no matter what is going on. You see, with Mary, Jesus didn't teach. He just goes and he weeps. He gets caught up in grief and sorrow. Have you ever wept at a grave before? My guess is probably many of you have. I have too. When my grandmother died, after the service was all over and I fulfilled my responsibilities, we, had, we went to eat somewhere as a family, and before I came back here to Greenville, I went back to the place where my grandparents were buried, and I just sat there and wept. And it was just me and God and the tombstones of my grandparents and in the distance where my mom went to high school and then the Smoky Mountains. And I just sat there and wept. And in that moment, you know who was weeping with me? Jesus. So if you ever wept because of loss, and I hope you have, Know that Jesus was there too, and that he knows how to weep. And in the same breath that you can read and know that he's the resurrection and the life, that's the exact same moment in which you can know that he feels the sorrow that you feel. And he grieves with you. He is fully present. He is never distracted. He is never weary of us. He is with us. And he is fully, fully present in all the ways that we struggle to be fully present. He never is. He never struggles. He's always there. And you know what's even better than thinking about the reality that Jesus is confident in the exact same moment he also knows how to weep? Look at what else this passage tells you about Jesus being fully present. Look at verse 33 and verse 38. It says that he was deeply troubled. He was deeply troubled. Twice in this passage, it says that. Twice, it says that he was troubled in his spirit, deeply troubled. You see, Jesus was not only filled with grief, he not only knows what it means to be sorrowful and to carry sorrow and, and, and feel that, he doesn't just see Mary and Martha weeping. Friends, what's happening when you read this stuff in verse 33 and 38 about Jesus being deeply troubled in his spirit, Jesus is actually frustrated and angry. This idea that's being communicated here is that Jesus was actually furious with rage. Outside of uh, scriptural language, this idea communicates like when animals snort. You ever been around an animal that snorts? 
You ever made a cow mad? You ever seen a horse get frustrated? Snort? Start kicking that leg a little bit? That's describing Jesus. He probably wasn't kicking his leg, but it was as if he had this internal rage going on. He was indignant. He was furious at what was going on. You got to put this together. Here he is, confident with Martha, in the exact same situation. He's weeping with Mary, and in all of that, he is full of internal rage. How in the world do you put that together? Have you ever met someone like this before? I don't know that I have. This is unbelievably profound. What this is saying is that as Jesus is in this moment, knowing that Lazarus has died, he is not just thinking about this present situation with Lazarus. He's actually looking down throughout history. And he's knowing the millions and the billions of people who would be ravaged by death. In other words, he's thinking about us too. He's not just weeping with us because of the loss. He hates death. He hates it. He sees death as a curse. He sees death as messing up what God had originally created. And when he gets frustrated with that and he's angry at death, it means that we can get angry at death too. It not only, because of Jesus and because of the gospel and because we look at the, the world the way God wants us to look at the world, we can not only weep with people, we can not only be confident in who Jesus is, but we can actually be angry at something. We can be angry at death. We can be angry at the curse that we all feel because there is death. That's how Jesus was feeling. That's what Jesus was doing. He was angry. He was angry at what was going on. And friends, if you put all this together, he was going to do something about it. There's not much I can do about death. When I've done memorial services and funeral services and grave rite services, I can, read, I can read the scriptures and I can offer words of encouragement. I can repeat what God has said, but I can't change anything. Neither can you. But Jesus weeps, Jesus is angry, and he can do something about it. Jesus was fully present, confident, sharing grief and anger, fully present present. Here's the second takeaway. Jesus is more concerned about good news than blame shifting, than the blame game. Jesus is more concerned about good news than playing the blame game. Remember we talked about this a couple weeks ago in John chapter 9, the blame game, how we're always looking for someone to blame. This guy was blind in chapter 9 and the disciples are like, well, who sinned, him or his father? Remember that? Look at what Jesus says in verse 4 when he hears the report. Jesus, Lazarus, the one you love, is sick. And Jesus immediately says, the purpose of this is glory. The purpose of this is glory. What's going on with Lazarus is actually going to reveal the glory of God. You see, what Jesus was anticipating is how much we, like his disciples, are always looking to play the blame game. He knew that the disciples were going to think to themselves, well, well, what happened? Why did this happen? Why did it do this? Who did this? What, what, what's going on? 
And Jesus tells them, and the same thing he tells us from the outset, oh, this is for the glory of God. This is for the glory of God. You see, Jesus anticipates all of our scattered hearts, how we go in one direction and the next time the opposite. You see, he knows that oftentimes we are such shallow people that this is the way we typically think. Good people have good lives, and bad people have painful lives. He knows that's how we typically think. And what happens when we live as if good people have good lives and bad people get painful lives? What that means is that our general way of looking at life is this. People that are successful and happy are happy and successful because they are responsible They are disciplined, and they are smart. And we are typically rewarded in our jobs for being disciplined and work hard and smart. And people often often think well of us because of our skills and our intelligence and our discipline. Because they see us as useful, right? They see us as useful. And then we have a tendency to turn that into our righteousness. And we tend to think of ourselves as great people that have great lives because we're disciplined, because we're smart, because we work hard, because we have skills. And then we end up thinking, look at what I have done. Look at who I am. Look at my accomplishments. And then that becomes the lens through which we hear God's word. That becomes the lens through which we process life and the message of Jesus. And we get it all wrong. We get it all wrong. And it goes even further than that. When we have that way of living our lives, what we end up thinking is, well, how do I know if God is upset with me? And the way we answer that question is typically this. I look how my life is going. My life is going bad. It must mean I'm not doing something that's right. My wife, if my life is going great, it's because I'm working hard and I'm smart and I'm using my skills and people respect me. And Jesus is undercutting all of that. You see, if you think, if I think, how do I know if God is upset with me? And my answer to that question is, well, I look at how my life is going. If that's the way we live, that's a horrible way to evaluate what God thinks of us. Because don't forget, Jesus himself lived a life full of poverty and struggle. Jesus himself lived a life full of backstabbing. Jesus himself lived a life of loneliness, betrayal. And let me tell you, he was desperately loved by the Father. Desperately loved by the Father. More than anything else. See, Jesus is concerned about glory. He's concerned about glory. That's why he says it over and over in verse 4. For most of us who have struggled with pride, which I have struggled with for a long, long time, if it wasn't for the pain in my life and the trouble in my life and the suffering that I've been through and the expectations that weren't met, I wouldn't understand how full of pride I was. 
How about you? If you struggle with pride and you look back over your life and you realize that you had these challenges in your life, I would have kept thinking I was something special unless that stuff happened. Knock my pride down. For those of us that struggle with control, if it, wasn't, if it wasn't for pain in my life and trouble in my life and unexpected messes in my life, I would still think that I'm in control. <laughs> but what God does is he uses those things in our lives to reduce our pride and to convince us that control is an illusion, that we aren't in control at all. You see, the real danger is thinking that everything is smooth in my life Therefore, God loves me. I read a book one time that shattered my world, and it said something like this, and you can extrapolate this into a million different applications. The worst thing that could happen for someone who's a straight-A student, and they build their whole life around that straight-A-ness, the worst thing that could happen is that I get another A. Blew my mind to think about that. Jesus is focusing us on glory. You see, back to our question. How does Jesus deal with death? How does he deal with death? Well, maybe you can feel the momentum of all of John's gospel up to this point. Maybe you realize in every chapter who Jesus is is more and more clear, and the hostility to him is more and more intense. And now it's to the point in which there is a systemic commitment to wiping Jesus out. Maybe you even feel the momentum of John 11, where Jesus says from the beginning that this whole thing about raising Lazarus is about glory. Maybe you feel the sense in which Jesus stayed in verse 6. Oh, Lazarus is ill. Well, I'm going to stay. Maybe you can feel that awkwardness, knowing that it's telling you something about Jesus and what he's going to do and who he is. Maybe you've even felt the momentum when you go back and read that when he encounters Martha and he says to her, oh, I am the resurrection and the life. Maybe you feel that momentum beginning to pick up and pick up until you understand that he not only knows how to grieve with people, but he's angry at death. Maybe you're beginning to feel that momentum of how this whole chapter was written because Jesus knew that raising Lazarus would mean that people would systemically be committed to killing him. Maybe you picked up on the fact that this whole idea of what Jesus is doing has been growing and gaining momentum in his own heart and gaining momentum in his own life so that he even knew that he was going to have to die. You see, Jesus is able to change this family's loss to joy, just like he's able to change our losses to joy. But Jesus is only able to change their losses to joy temporarily. Lazarus would die again. But Jesus knew that if he raised Lazarus from the dead, it meant that he would be consenting to his own death. In other words, every time, the only possible way that Jesus could finally raise Lazarus and finally raise us from the dead is for him to die himself. The only way that could happen is if he would die for people like you and me. And it meant, if you can connect these dots, and if not, that's fine. Just listen to this. It meant every time when Jesus was at a wedding, remember this in John 2? Remember what he was thinking about at that wedding in Cana? 
his own bride. And then every time that he stood at the grave of a lifeless person, he was thinking about his own life and that he knew that he had to give it up and get into the ground in order for us to be raised again. And friends, that is the kind of Savior that we have who gave his own life, who had power to lay it down and take it up again so that one day we'll get out of the grave too.